This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to History Chatter. This is a special episode. Today, on 2nd of October 2020, Mahatma Gandhi turns 151. I wish to talk about his last two months, or perhaps the last six months of his life. There was an unfamiliar campaign that he carried out during those months. It should be called the second do or die campaign of his life. This time, he died. Let me quote him from November 11, 1947. He was 79. He would be shot dead by another two and a half months. Here is what he had to say. Who knows, my ahimsa might be tested at the fag end of my life. A proverb says that a dying flame burns the brighter before it burns itself out. Maybe my end is approaching. I am fully prepared. Everyone should be prepared. I write all this to explain to you what passes in my mind as I see the way things are going. As I see the explosion of violence and the disappearance of human kindness, Try to understand this if you can, otherwise just watch whatever unfolds itself. That is Mahatma Gandhi, November 11, 1947. What were the last days of Gandhi like? What had he been thinking towards the end of his life? By then, let us remember, he had become distant, indeed uh, removed, from mainstream politics and occupied himself by and large with what may be called stock-taking. He had been in active politics for over 50 years. In India, he had been active as a leader for nearly 40 years. India had only recently attained independence, yet there was the partition too and bloody riots on an unprecedented scale. He had no message to offer to his countrymen on August 15, 1947. He had run dry of messages, he famously said. His writing and speeches offer a guide to what was passing through his mind during the last few months of his life. Volume 90 of his collected works contains letters and speeches during the last three months of his life. The volume is nearly 500 pages long. It may be useful to present some snippets to see which parting thoughts had filled the mind of the father of the nation during his last breath. First and foremost, he was shocked. He had to accept that, quote, there was no real appreciation of non-violence in the 30-year struggle against the British Raj. Unquote. The peace the masses maintained during the struggle had not come from within them. It was merely a response to the fear, a defense mechanism against the fear 
of the British bayonet. Their pent-up fury found a vent as soon as the British were gone. The way things were going, all he saw was an explosion of violence and disappearance of human kindness. Try to understand this, he wrote to a correspondent, or watch whatever unfold itself. At the same time, he was disturbed by the uncertainty with regard to the accession of princely states. He did not understand what the princes had in mind. He thought they had absolutely no right to decide whether or not their, their territories should join India and Pakistan. Once the people of a particular state had the legal right, according to his understanding, to decide which country they wished to accede to, the princes really had no role there. Now, of course, he had uh, a different understanding of law, and that is a point that merits a separate discussion. He was pensive. The nation has gone bankrupt. He wrote on the Diwali day. Murders and shootings have become common occurrences. Let us pray to God that people may see true light, he wrote. On that day, he had been delivering a radio broadcast to refugees at a camp in Kurukshetra in Haryana. It was only his second ever radio broadcast. The first was in the UK in 1932. He addressed them as if they had not permanently lost their homes. He said he would do everything in his power to see that everyone who lost home was reinstated, either in India or in Pakistan. In a prayer meeting, he said Diwali could not be celebrated till all Muslims who had run away in fear were brought back. Pakistan too would not survive, he was convinced, if all Hindus and Sikhs who had to flee there, were not brought back home. He now reinterpreted, of course, uh, these words. His sense of home had been quite different. He had now time to reintroduce his do-or-die slogan. Either he would restore peace, he said, or he would die trying. He was successful um, a few months ago in Calcutta. Towards the end of the year in Delhi, he found the task much harder towards the end of 1947. Since nationalist Muslim leaders in Delhi appeared to have lost all authority, he could not understand why people were going about saying, quote, we should not have a single Muslim in our country, unquote. If that day came to pass, we would be a slave again. He was absolutely certain. He wanted the Congress to take a strong position against such observations. It is also when he um, explicitly wrote that the Congress should be warmed up. It was built to attain Swaraj. Some kind of Swaraj had been attained, though it was far from the ideal kind. The Congress had no more purpose to survive. If it did, he said it would only keep many excellent people alienated, excellent leaders such as Chai Prakash Narayan could be brought back, but he could not be brought back if the Congress continued to survive. Narayan did not uh, stand the Congress anymore.
Gandhi called upon the AICC to initiate steps to recall Muslims who had left for Pakistan without waiting for Pakistan to recall its Hindus or Sikhs. If the Congress did not do it, it would betray the founding principles, he believed. There was this case when 150,000 Muslims were to be sent to Pakistan, presumably because they belonged to the criminal tribes. Gandhi resisted it. His point was simple. Why must only innocent people live in India, as though the country did not allow any criminals to live here in the past? He did not exactly accept that those Muslims were indeed criminals. His point was stronger. So what even if they were? Why must their crimes be an excuse to rob them of their home? The Congress did indeed pass such a resolution, but um, it did not prove to be terribly useful. I'll shortly come to uh, some of the ways in which that failure occurred. He was also concerned about corruption and advised the Congress to immediately abolish the wartime rationing systems. It was called by the dreaded name control. Control always bred corruption, Gandhi was convinced. The Congress leadership had to change and its direction too. Either it had to be disbanded or a new dynamic personality was required. This is what he told Rajendra Prasad. He advised Prasad to travel widely and understand what the people were really looking for. Prasad had resigned uh, the ministership of the Nehru government and he recently took over as the new Congress president. Now, times were indeed very difficult. The Congress had to see its pious wishes were not working. Now, how did really the reality as it were pan out? Gandhi had to narrate a sad incident. The resolution shows where our duty lies, and I quote, and that is the most important thing. If we take it for granted that the Muslims are a worthless lot, it is a grave sin. It is the supreme duty of all of us not to drive away anyone. People have seen the working committee resolution three or four days ago, and they have also seen the indications in the press. In spite of that, the Muslims are running away. People say that the AICC accepted this resolution of because of my insistence. They say that all Muslims should go away, otherwise they would be killed. I have already said what I'd do. I'd do or die. When I'm ready to die, the Muslims too should be ready to die if the need arises. We've become so heartless that we want them to walk 300 miles in the cold winter. It is said that there are not too many deaths in the camps. Should it not be our concern as to how they die? Some of them do not get food, some have cholera, some get dysentery, or something else happens to them. But does anyone bother to know why these people die? Gandhi was visibly very, very disturbed. And that is a consequence of having seen from close quarters how they had been suffering. He could not accept 
partition at any cost and he would have to persuade everyone in India that Muslims were as much part of the country as anyone else. He was talking about the Delhi riots, for instance. In parts of Delhi too, he wrote, attempts are being made to drive away the Muslims out of their houses so that the Hindu and the Sikh refugees could be accommodated there. The Sikhs go about brandishing their swords and threaten the Muslims with dire consequences if they refuse to give up their houses. I'm also told that the Sikhs drink liquor, in consequence of which um, can be well imagined. They dance about with their naked swords and scare away the pedestrians. I'm also informed that according to customs, Muslims do not sell kebabs, but other meat preparations in Chandni Chowk and nearby areas. But the Sikhs and perhaps other refugees too freely sell these forbidden things there. This hurts the feeling of Hindus in that locality. Well, the, the nuisance has grown to such an extent that people cannot easily pass through the crowded Chandni Chowk. They're afraid of being insulted. I appeal to my refugee friends that they should not indulge in such things for their own sake and for the sake of the country. As for the Kirpans, the Sikhs have been forbidden by law to carry Kirpans larger than the prescribed size. While this law is in force, many Sikh friends come to me with a request that I should try to, to have this restriction withdrawn. They told me about the judgment passed by the Privy Council several years ago, which permitted the Sikhs to carry kirpans of any size. I have not read that judgment. I think the judges have interpreted kirpan to mean sword of any size. The then Punjab government, in order to carry out the Privy Council's decision, declared that everyone was free to keep a sword. That is why in the Punjab men carry swords of any size they choose. I have no sympathy with the Punjab government or the Sikhs in this matter. Some Sikh friends have brought to my notice certain portions from the Granth Sahib, which support my view that the Kirpan is not a weapon to be used to attack the innocent. Only the Sikhs abiding by the tenets of the Granth Sahib can use the kirpan for the protection of innocent women, children and old and helpless people. This is the reason why one Sikh is regarded equal to one and a quarter lakh opens. That is why any Sikh who takes intoxicants, who gambles or is prey to other vices has no right to keep a kirpan, which is a symbol of purity and restraint and which is to be used only on particular occasions in a prescribed manner. Well, he had constantly waged these sort of verbal wars in his Do or Die project, Do or Die O2. He was deeply troubled by the lack of employment, for instance. The talk of Khadi and village industries did not appear to enthuse people anymore. Refugees were shelterless and shivering. How to provide them work? And I quote, Everyone will remember this old man one day when it will be realized that India has no alternatives except to develop village industries. He would keep writing to other marginal groups too. 
He wrote to widows, for instance. He knew they had to live a terrible life in terms of restrictions over their food and clothes and wanted the same rules to apply to widowers as well. Intriguingly enough, he did not like that widows were not allowed on auspicious occasions, but called upon the widows themselves to organize on their own. It is an interesting challenge of Gandhian politics that remains to be fully understood yet. Somehow, he wanted the marginal to rise up on his or her own. Quite how it had to be done, it was not always clear, but he was clear that it had to be done. Such were the last days of the father of the nation. I have offered only a very limited collection of some of the major thoughts and concerns that occupied his mind during his last couple of months. As we can see, the primary concern that occupied his attention almost totally during these months is the question of peace among Hindus and Muslims. Most importantly, he did not accept partition. He was unable to understand why the Congress or indeed anyone in India did either. Even if people accepted partition, he did not understand, could not understand why the Muslims in India or Hindus or Punjabis from, from Pakistan had to be living their ancestral homes. The problem of home continues to haunt India today. Who belongs to which country, which place? which language, who wears what kind of clothes, who eats what kind of foods, are problems that continue to resonate, that continue to trouble the conscience of the Indians today, as much as they did in 1947 or 1948. It is in this context that it will be very useful for us most of us to go back to some of the things that Gandhi wrote and spoke about. His collected works, which run into nearly a hundred volumes, are all available online entirely for free. Today may be an occasion to think and to ask whether or not sometimes when we have time we should go back and consult the sage advice of the father and what he had to say to his nation. Did he, Gandhi, fail us or did we, Indians, fail him? Thank you so much. That brings an end to this special edition of History Chatter on Gandhi Jayanti. Tell us what you think about the podcast. Tell us your feedback about its content. Let us know what you want included. And please, please subscribe to the podcast in Epilogue Media, Spotify, GeoSavan, Apple Podcast, and your favorite podcast streaming platforms. Till then, till the next episode, this is your friend Onirban signing off. Here's to peace.